Hey everyone, and welcome to the 7investing.com podcast. Our mission at 7investing is to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing a ton of free educational content like this podcast and by offering a monthly subscription service where our team of advisors provides our seven best ideas in the stock market each month for just $17. I have had a lot of fun and I've learned a lot from talking to the different guests on our podcast. And I've um, one of the areas I'm really personally trying to study is venture capital because I think there's a, a lot that we can learn as public market investors about the way venture capital firms and investors operate. Some of the framework works they use, the long-term mindset. We talked about, uh, we talked to Jammin Ball from Redpoint Ventures before, and today I'm excited to talk to Jeff Richards, who is a managing partner at GGV Capital. Jeff joined GGV in 2008 after spending 13 years as an entrepreneur and operating executive in the U.S. and Asia. He focuses on enterprise and cloud marketplace investments, and he led GGV's investments in Aperio, which I may have just pronounced wrong, Belong Home, Big Commerce, Coinbase, and a few others. Uh, Jeff, thanks for joining. I'm excited to talk to you. And um, can you fill in any holes I missed about your background and then also tell us a little bit more about how GGV is, is set up? Yeah, um, I don't think there were any holes. Uh, but no, I, I, uh, I mean, I guess the short version is I grew up in Seattle. I went to school on the East Coast. I actually played basketball for four years in college, which was a lot of fun and taught me a lot about managing my time. Uh, and I moved to Silicon Valley in 1995. So I've been in Silicon Valley since 95. I worked in the U.S. and Hong Kong from 95 to 97. And then I started my first software company in 1997. So it was kind of a crazy ride. I was 25 years old and um, ended up raising $125 million in the dot-com bubble, which was a lot of money back then. <laughs> so... And then, uh, you know, essentially walked away from that company in 2002 with nothing. Um, it was a big zero. So I learned a lot in a five-year window about raising money and a whole bunch of other stuff. Got married, started my second company in 2003, did the exact opposite, raised a million dollars from friends and family, and then sold it uh, to a public company called VeriSign. And I then spent three years at VeriSign, got to work with amazing people, which we can talk more about. And then joined the BB in 2008. So I've been doing venture capital for 12 years, and it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. And and as far as the firm goes, we're a global venture capital firm. We manage about six and a half billion dollars. So we're in uh, in Asia, Southeast Asia, China, India, Latin America, and then about half the firm is focused on the U.S. So uh, been investing in the U.S. for about 20 years, and Asia, and and more broadly for 20 years. So the firm was founded in 2000. I joined in 2008. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing. And that's um, really interesting. And one of the, the reasons that I'm really excited to talk to you is because of your firm and your experience internationally, which right now is, it's always important, but uh, now is as important as ever. And um, you were on Howard Linzon's um, Panic with Friends March, I think it was March 11th that you actually recorded the podcast. And one of the things I found, <laughs> well, yeah, but what was interesting about that podcast is that you and the firm had seen some indications from some of the companies you own and probably some, some other areas you were looking at that, yeah. that were kind of leading indicators as far as, is how, you know, things were going to unfold. Uh, you mentioned, you mentioned playing sports in college. I, I played sports in high school and then my first, my first year I played uh, baseball in college and 
I found that it wasn't as fun as, as it was in high school because it felt more like a job because you're trying to earn scholarship and stuff like that. Uh, I didn't finish my time in college playing, but you did. So we'd just love to hear your thoughts on that real quick. Kind of completely not investing related. Yeah, I mean, look, it was, uh, I was essentially kind of a walk-on. Uh, I went to Dartmouth and the Ivy League wouldn't have scholarships, but they had recruited five other players and kind of lightly recruited me. Um, but, you know, I just, I really wanted to play. And so it was one of those things where I had to work my ass off uh, to be on the team starting as a freshman and did a lot of things that you wouldn't normally do to be part of that team, but it was such a great experience. Um and yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, uh, it's definitely a level up from high school and I'm sure the pros is a level up from college. Um, you know, the hardest part is just managing your time. I mean, I was, you know, you, you, you've got two or three hours of practice every day. You've got an hour, an hour and a half of working out, uh, weight, lifting weights. You kind of have to eat right, although you're in college. So you're still eating a lot of burgers and things like that. But, you know, it just really taught me about time management in a, in a window in time where a lot of my friends who didn't play sports you know, we're sitting on the couch playing Sega hockey or drinking beer or whatever. And so it just, you know, it just teaches you a lot about time management and discipline. And then I think team sports in general, uh, at least for me, teaches you a lot about winning, about losing. You know, my, I think it was my junior year, we lost 10 games in a row. And coming into the gym at 7.30 on a Saturday morning when you've lost 10 games in a row, pretty fucking hard. <laughs> so, you know, later in life, you can kind of draw on some of that experience because, you know, nobody's career goes straight up into the right. I mean, we all have a lot of challenges, raising a family, getting married, raising kids. I mean, there's so many things along the way that can get you down. And I think, um, you know, you and I chatted a, a week or so ago. I, I do think one of the things I learned from my dad and from my mom was just to be positive, right? No matter what situation you're in, um, try to be positive. And it's tough, uh, you know, particularly right now with everything going on in the world. I think we all are struggling to, to stay positive. But it's one of the messages I keep trying to reinforce to my kids. And I think part of it is the way I grew up. And part of it is having played sports and just, you know, you got to suck it up when you lose 10 games in a row uh, and get back on the horse. And good news is we won our 11th game. So yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, with sports, a lot of times it's when things start going bad, it's, you stick to the process that you've, you've learned and built over time and then entrust that eventually it's going to get better. And you have, of course you have to adjust and, and, you know, make minor adjustments, but, but sports teams generally don't go make some massive change because, because they haven't been winning. They, they double down and stick to the process and then adjust as they need to. So lots of lessons to learn. The other thing, and kind of probably the last thing on sports, my, my high school coach, we had a, a slogan on our baseball team um, that I think has stuck with me my whole life and career is that hard work beats talent when talent stops working hard. Uh, and, and so through sports, you, you learn lessons like that, right? Which I'm sure you've applied a lot of lessons you've learned to your career and everything you've done. So that's cool. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that, Jeff. Um, one of the things I, I'm a big fan of yours on, on Twitter and, and uh, as, as much as there's the, whatever that account is that makes fun of venture capitalists, um, which is lot. funny to look at sometimes. <laughs> They're uh, easy targets. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I do appreciate um, what a lot of different people share. And one of the things I appreciate, appreciate about you, Jeff, is um, you talk a lot about mental health. So that's where I, I want to kind of start this podcast after that. Um, you wrote a tweet and it was on August 26th that said, to be honest, if you don't have some level of anxiety and depression right now, I'm not sure you're human. We're having this talk weekly with our kids and it's not infrequent that an adult is crying. 
I'm as optimistic as anyone on the planet, but these are challenging times. And so um, it's, I think we're getting better about it, but there's been a stigma about sharing things about your mental health and about depression. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what are some things you're doing right now to, to focus on your mental and physical health? Well, first of all, I think you're, you're right about the stigma. And I, and I think, you know, like just last week, you saw Dak Prescott, who's the quarterback of the Cowboys, talk about it. And he got criticized by a journalist who I think was way off base. But it just shows you like how far we still have to go. I, I think, you know, for me, it's something that I didn't really understand until I became an entrepreneur. And, um, and even in my first company, I was kind of too young almost to realize how stressful it was. <laughs> But the second time around, you know, I had, I had just gotten married and we had our first baby about a year after we got married. And so I was in this weird vortex of like, I just got married. I started a company. I was making, we were paying ourselves zero. We had no salary. So I was living on my wife's salary. She was working in an investment bank. She had healthcare coverage, thank God. And it was super stressful, right? And I just remember that feeling of like, the world is on my shoulders. I've got to create this company. I've, got to, I've now got people working who are relying on their paychecks. They're relying on me for their paychecks. Um, I've got a wife, I've got a kid. And what's interesting is most of us kind of go through the peak of our career in our 30s. Or not the peak of our career, but we start to get into a really good time in our careers work-wise in our 30s. But that's also the time when a lot of people are starting families and buying homes and dealing with a lot of issues that they haven't had to deal with uh, previously. And so I just think it's a really interesting vortex that for whatever reason, you know, 20 years ago, maybe, maybe even 10 years ago, nobody talked about. And so for me, social media, if nothing else, you know, forget all the negative aspects of social media and Facebook with the elections and everything else, which I, I, I dislike. Um, I think the openness about mental health and you've had a lot of prominent entrepreneurs and investors, et cetera, come out and talk about it has been super positive. Cause I remember back then this feeling, and I was probably 32 or 33, like, where did you go for that? There was no social media. It wasn't cool to go to a therapist. You didn't really have networks of entrepreneurs that you could spend a lot of time with. And so it was really hard to deal with. And it was, it was a struggle. So I, you know, I'm very empathetic to the entrepreneurs that we back, the companies that I'm on the board of. I'm always trying to talk to them, make sure they're in a good space. And then it, the more you can sort of put it out there on social media, uh, I think when people who are in a position um, to do so and to sort of validate the feelings that people have, I think it's positive. And so more of that in my mind is a good thing. And I thought, you know, I thought Dak Prescott coming out and talk about it was great. I mean, imagine how many athletes are, I mean, as an athlete, not only are you, are you working your ass off to be a professional athlete, but you could get cut at any time and lose your, lose your livelihood. Most people don't feel that stress every day. So I just thought it was really honorable that he came out and talked about it. Yeah. And then you asked the question, what am I doing about it? I mean, you know, people ask me like, what are the great life hacks? One of my great life hacks is marry the right person. <laughs> I got lucky and, and, you know, married my wife actually 18 years ago. We just had our anniversary last week and being married to somebody that you can sort of talk about the things that are stressing you out, um, have open conversations about how you need to manage your time and the trade-offs that you're making as individuals, as you grow up, we have four kids. We tell you, have four kids studying from home is about as stressful as it gets. And, uh, and so we've had to have a lot of hard conversations and kind of figure things out as we go along. And we've certainly had some arguments and, and frustrating moments, but um, you know, one of the ways that I've been getting through the last six to eight months is just by, by having a great home life and relationship that even on a bad day, it's still better than where I would be by myself. And so that's one. Two, you know, as I mentioned to you, I try and get up and work out every morning. Um, that's something I kind of grew up doing, playing basketball. 
uh, even if it's just a 20 minute walk outside, I think it, I think it jogs your brain and just kind of puts you in a good frame of mind, gives you a little, a minute to kind of just think, particularly when, I mean, you know, I've been doing Zoom meetings this week on Mondays. We do our Zoom meetings until about nine o'clock at night because we have our team in Asia and that's the morning for them. So Mondays can start at eight and end at nine. It's a, it's a, it's, it's hard when you're in the office. It's really hard when you're sitting looking at a Zoom screen all day. So if you can get out, take a walk. Um, I have found that talking to friends on the phone, not on Zoom for five, 10 minutes and just catching up has been therapeutic. So there's, you know, there's a lot you can do. I think it all revolves around not just doing the same thing all day uh, and trying to get a little diversity in your day. Yeah. And, um, you know, not to turn this whole thing into a, a mental health podcast, although I think, you know, that would be totally fine to talk about it. But um, we, so you and I talked about this before too. Uh, I'm, I'm still in the Air National Guard, but when I was on active duty, um, there were people in the squadrons, in, the squadrons that I was a part of that uh, attempted suicide and, and things like that. And the, the, the common theme really among all of them was that nobody saw it coming. Yeah. And, and so I guess the last point I want to hit on, and maybe it's a question for you too, is especially in this work from home environment, which I think is great for a lot of reasons. We're opening up opportunities to different people throughout the world. And I think there's a lot of innovation and a lot of great things that come from it. But one thing that, that is challenging are conversations that you have with people uh, in person, in the hallway, or in the common kitchen at work or whatever, where things just come out and you can see people and you can, you can tell if they're off or not feeling, feeling right that day. A lot of times we're, we don't have that anymore. So um, are, is there anything that you've, any ways that you've found to be able to connect with teammates or companies that you're invested in to just check on them mentally um, yeah. and, and see how they're doing uh, remotely? It's an issue for all of us, right? And, um, you know, we as a firm, probably March, April, May, started having conversations about how do we recreate that kitchen, you know, that snack room atmosphere. Um, so we've been doing all hands every week. We gave our team extra vacation days and asked them to take them before October 1st. We said, hey, we want to give you extra vacation days and we actually want you to take them. And we said, even if you don't go anywhere, just take a day off. Don't respond to email. Don't do phone calls. Don't do texts. You know, go to the, go, go, go to the Humane Society and, and, you know, hang out with animals. Do, do something other than sit in front of your Zoom all day. It's just not healthy. So I think that's part of it. And then, you know, I've been just blown away by the way that uh, many of our entrepreneurs and CEOs have been way out ahead of us on this. So I'll give you one example. Deidre Pocknott, who's the CEO of a company called Workboard, um, she created a program where they send flowers every week to every employee's home. And there was just a, I tweeted it out last week, a TV segment about it. And, you know, her thing was like, I'm not saying everybody loves flowers, but people love just knowing that somebody's thinking about them. And yeah. if they look across the room where they're doing their Zoom, whether it's their laundry room or an office or the couch, or they see some flowers and they're like, okay, somebody's thinking about me. I think that's powerful. And so I've just been, you know, we have um, at Electric, they're doing group cycle rides on Pelotons. Uh, we've got companies that are, you know, meeting outdoors and doing socially distanced activities. Because you're right, it's super hard to replicate the, the kitchen conversation, the hallway conversation, the offsites. And humans need that, right? Not to mention, we're not going to sporting events. We're not going to concerts. I mean, I have, I love concerts. I have friends who go to concerts like religiously several times a month and it's killing them. Yeah. So we, we kind of forget how much of our society is oriented around social interaction. And when you remove that out of the equation, it's, it's brutal. I think we're going to look back on this 
2020 era and find out that there's a lot of lasting effects. And it's, um, you know, we could talk about beyond adults, kids, like kids aren't going to school, right? So much of your life as a kid revolves around going to school and playing with your friends and going to recess if you're younger and, you know, just all that interaction that they're not getting. I, I really think it's, um, I really think it's tragic. So the sooner we can, you know, move beyond the COVID-19 crisis, the better it can't come fast enough. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, Thanks again for spending some time talking about that topic and for what you share regularly out there on Twitter. I will share this at the end and in show notes, but um, everyone can find Jeff at uh, J rich live on Twitter. Um, and, and again, we'll link it out. So um, I, I've found what you share to be helpful for me um, with, with mental health and mental awareness. So thanks. Thanks Jeff for sharing that. Um, so let's kind of switch it into uh so I get, um, you talked about, I'll share one more pointless story. You talked about going on vacations. We took a RV vacation as a family nice. thinking it, no, it was terrible. Oh, thinking no. it was going to be a great <laughs> idea. We have a five-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter and a dog. And we were like, well, we'll go on this vacation. We don't have to fly. We don't have to stay in hotels or anything like that. So we rented an RV and it was like the worst vacation the possible. Falls. So we came back more stressed than we were. The reason it was stressful is because, there's only one spot in these RVs that you rent from Cruise America where car seats can go. And ah. it's like 15 feet away or 10 feet away from the driver and, and the passenger seat. So we can't intervene. Yeah. Our kids started fighting the whole time. It was, it was just super stressful. Well, I'm going to have to think about that because my wife is trying to talk me into doing, doing an RV trip next summer. So <laughs> if, if you had the right age kids, it, it would yeah, probably my kids be great. Are older, but, so. yeah, yeah. But anyways, uh, yeah. all right. Well, you so, learned from those experiences. Yeah, it was still fun. I mean, in a, in a miserable way, it was fun. Um, so let's talk about investing a little bit, right? And so um, some people listening to this are probably familiar with what venture capital firms do. Some probably aren't as familiar. So to give them an idea, I would love to just maybe hear about um, how an investment opportunity kind of flows through the different stages of um your firm from kind of discovery or where you might hear about it um, through making uh, an investment? Yeah. So, I mean, just at a basic level, so venture capital is really just investing in private companies. And in our firm, it's all tech. We only do tech. Some firms do healthcare or other, other industries, but it's just investing in private companies. And the reason they call it venture capital is because it's theoretically supposed to be very early and very high risk. Uh, but also high reward. Um, so our best investments, you know, our worst investments, we lose our money. Um, so we can put in five, 10, 15, 20 million or more into a company and it goes to zero, but our best investments, you know, we can make a hundred times our money. So GGV sort of um, well known in the Asian venture capital community, but we were the early venture capital firm behind Alibaba group. And we invested a $200 million valuation when it was a $10 million revenue company. <laughs> Uh, and today, I think Alibaba's market cap is something like six or seven hundred billion. So, when you get it right, um, the returns from venture capital can be enormous. And it's a different—it's a different game. If you think of the public markets as sort of a batting average game, in other words, I want to own a basket of stocks and return ten or fifteen percent a year. With venture capital, it's more of a slugging average game. So, I might make a hundred investments, and if five of them, you know, are home runs, they make up for the the eighty you know, 80 to 95 that don't go anywhere. And, um, and so it's, you know, it's a really important part of our economy. A huge percentage of the jobs in the U.S. were actually created by venture-backed companies. You think about Google and Amazon and Netflix and others. Um, 
because it's risk capital. So it's, it's capital that is designed to give somebody who has a crazy idea, whether it's Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or, you know, your friend down the street, um, give them capital when nobody else would. And it looks insane, but if you get it right, the return on your investment is enormous. So that's what, that's what venture capital is. And for us, the way that our firm's been around for 20 years. Um, so when I joined, we were on fund three, now we're on fund seven. Um, you know, for us, we've now got a team of about 90 people around the world. Uh, and that team of people, we are developing focuses on sectors and thesis that we think are interesting. And then diving into those sectors and thesis and trying to find great companies and great entrepreneurs to invest in. And so I'll, I'll give you an example, which is in the e-commerce category. You know, we, we were early investors in Alibaba. We sort of watched the commerce, the e-commerce market grow up around the world and had a thesis that when uh, the iPhone and the App Store came out in kind of the 08 to 010 timeframe, there would be a new wave of e-commerce that would be unlocked that kind of hadn't really been there on the web because Amazon was so dominant. And so we made a whole bunch of investments. We led the Series B in a company called Wish. We did the Series B in a company called House. We did the Series B in a company called Poshmark. We invested in Peloton. Um, so a whole bunch of companies that were kind of in and around the e-commerce space because we believed that as more people got onto the internet via mobile phones, they would do more of their spending on, on mobile and on the internet and, and that would drive e-commerce adoption upwards. Um, but again, that was you know, seven, eight years ago. And, uh, and, and we also invested, we were looking for a way to invest in that in the, in the software space and invested in a company called Big Commerce back in 2016. So we made all these bets five or six years ago. And what you're seeing now is a number of those companies go public. Uh, Peloton went public, now has a $25 billion market cap. Uh, Big Commerce went public, now has a $5 billion market cap. Um, and companies like Wish and Poshmark are, are very well-run, multi-hundred million dollar revenue businesses. So, um, so the, they're long-term bets and you kind of pick sectors and thesis that you think will take time to play out. If you look in the software space, the whole bet on cloud has been just incredible for venture capital investors and frankly for public market investors, which we can talk more about. But, um, you know, they're they're long-term bets with, with high return multiples. And, and generally our thesis is, you know, we have, we have t-shirts we made that say go long because our awesome. theory is if we can invest in these companies and bet on the long-term growth of the company, we can generate outsized returns. And so that's the whole idea behind go long as well. Yeah, that's awesome. You talked about uh, a couple questions from that. You said, you talked about your biggest losses um, where you might lose 90 to hundred percent. I would actually argue those probably aren't your biggest losses. Your biggest losses are probably companies you passed on that sure. went on to return, you <laughs> yeah. know, uh, whatever big. percent, right? And yeah. I'm pointing that out because I think we're going to kind of transfer this over to public market investing um, in, a, in a little while. And so I think that's an important lesson for, for public market investors is, you know, a, a investment can only go down 100%, which sounds like a lot. But as long as you didn't bet your whole account or your whole firm on that one investment, that's fine. Uh, but selling something too early or passing on it or whatever can actually be your, your biggest loss. Yeah. I think another big lesson there, maybe it's the same point is when you get it right, the returns are bigger than you think. And so, and that's particularly true today where we have 7.3 billion people around the world, several billion of, you know, I always love it on when I'm watching CNBC or another show and they're like, Oh, it's like the dot-com bubble. I'm like in the dot-com bubble, there were a hundred million people in the world on the internet in the world. In China alone today, there's 400 million millennials that have internet access. 
So yeah. it's like the, the economics of the technology distribution model around the world are completely different than they were 20 years ago. And I think a lot of people still haven't wrapped their heads around that. Uh, they're probably still trying to figure out what a, what a DNS address means and, and where, that, where that content comes from. But to your point, when we've missed a company or passed on a company on investing in a company, very often it was because we didn't realize how big the market opportunity was. So usually we, we underestimated the team, which, you know, as an entrepreneur, I can tell you, there's no better feeling than have somebody pass on investing in you. And then later on you build a giant company and tell them to go <laughs> fuck themselves. But, um, but, you know, we, 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 we underestimated the team and then we didn't understand how big the market opportunity was. And I think what you're seeing now is, you know, people are, are trying to figure out why there's so much fervor around the IPO market. And it's because public market investors have realized what private market investors realized several years ago, which is if you get it right, the outcomes are enormous, right? And so I remember we wrote an investment memo on Twilio, which is a great company run by Jeff Lawson, who I think is one of the best founders and CEOs of Silicon Valley. But I went back and looked at it and we sort of forecasted, like, if we get this right, it could be a three to $4 billion company. And today, which by the way, was probably conventional wisdom among other investors as well. But today that company's worth, I think, 35 or $38 billion. And so we, we were off by orders of magnitude. And so uh, the thing that we've tried to adjust in our investing style is to sort of develop that bigger point of view about what could the company actually accomplish if we get it right, number one. And number two, how can we invest more over time when we're finding those companies that are doing well, as opposed to just sort of, quote unquote, letting them ride. And then, you know, one of the things you famously see people criticize venture capitalists for is distributing the stock or selling their position too early. And that's another one where you miss, right? You, your company goes public, uh, you know, gets up to a two or $3 billion market cap. Everybody distributes their shares or sells their shares. And then five years later, it's worth 50 billion. Yeah. Uh, so those are, those hurt as well. Yeah. Um, and the, the last thing was you mentioned the Alibaba metrics. And I think you said uh, what they were doing, 2 billion in revenue and you invested at a hundred billion valuation, no, something they, like that. But we invested at 200 million. They were doing 10 million in revenue. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm guessing it, that was seen as super expensive and overpriced at the time. Right. And, and obviously it wasn't if you had a long enough term, mindset and, and exactly the things that, you, that you're talking about is, is you're able to well, I think, think if you about. Look at, I think if you look at that scenario, like in hindsight, we all look back and say, well, of course there were going to be a billion internet users in China. And of course, because you have this move into the urban centers in China, there was going to be more spending and rising incomes. And when there were rising incomes, they were going to be spent online, not physically. I mean, China, e-commerce is more than 50% of retail. Today in the U.S., as of January, it was only 16%. It rose to 40% in Q2, which is one of the greatest economic booms we'll ever see. But in China, it's been above 50%. So in hindsight, you'd say, well, of course, all of that makes sense. But if you wind back the clock to 2003, there were less than 100 million people in China on the internet. The incomes weren't high and weren't rising. Capitalism was a relatively new concept in China. So there were a lot of reasons to bet against that trend, even though you and I would sit here today and say, well, that was a no-brainer. Yeah. But, but at the time, they aren't no-brainers. And that's where I think we kick ourselves a lot as investors. Like for me, I, I, I'm on my, I, I've owned three Teslas. I love it. I think it's one of the best products I've ever bought. I don't own the stock. And I'm like, and it's funny because my dad, who's 78 years old, when I bought my first Tesla, he bought the stock. <laughs> so he was just telling me the other day, he's like, man, what a great return. He goes, I hope you love your car. <laughs> <laughs> but I just thought it was too expensive. You know, I was like, oh my God, for the amount of volume they're producing, it's too expensive. What I missed 
was the genius of Elon Musk. And when you back one of the greatest, you know, I think arguably the greatest entrepreneur of our lifetime, the magic that he can create is incredible. You can argue about the valuation of the multiple of revenue and profits and everything else, but like what he's done is incredible. And when you find that rare and unique entrepreneur CEO, they create so much outsized wealth, right? Jeff Bezos is in that same category or, you know, if you look at Steve Jobs and Tim Cook, I mean, Tim Cook has created more market value than Steve Jobs. But like when you find those companies, and I think one of the things that we have as individual investors, we don't have to produce returns. So a fund manager has to kind of trade in and out of stocks to generate returns for their investors. For you and I, we can buy these things and hold them, right? I bought Salesforce when it went public because I had a couple of friends who worked there and I've never sold the stock. Now I only had, I didn't have that much money. So I only bought like a couple thousand dollars for the stock, but it's like, I never had to sell because I never had pressure on me to generate any returns for anybody. And so when it went down in 08, 09, I was like, eh, I'm not in any hurry, I'll hold. And one of the hidden secrets of venture capital is a lot of venture capitalists, when they, when they get an exit, they distribute that stock to their limited partners, they put it in their own account and they sit on it. So you've got partners of venture capital firms that are sitting on Google stock from, you know, whatever it was, 17, 18 years ago, because they've never had to sell and just watched it appreciate over time. And I think there's, I think there is definitely something to learn from that as you think about being a public market investor. If you can afford to buy and hold, unless you're betting against the American economy, which I'm not, uh, it's been a good investment. And that sort of goes back like 20, 30 years, not just the 10 year bull run we've been in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've talked about a few of these things. You mentioned leadership um, and, and people like uh, Jeff Lawson being being an awesome founder leader, Elon Musk being incredible. Um, so clearly leadership is important. Uh, one, what are some things you look at to evaluate the leadership at a company? And then also, are there any metrics you look for in companies? So, you know, you talk about you invest in tech, right? So is it dollar-based net expansion rate? Is it revenue growth? Is it customer acquisition cost? Are there just a few things that you that you look very closely at? Uh, well, yes. <laughs> Obviously, when we're doing diligence on an investment, we look at a lot of very detailed metrics. I would say, let's just focus on enterprise software for a minute, and I'll kind of tell you what I look for. Um, first of all is big market, right? Like if I think about, you know, for example, back in March when I was, you mentioned Howard's podcast, when I was on Howard's podcast, I think my recommendations were Zoom, CrowdStrike, uh, smart sheet. I'm not sure what else, but I know those were, were in there. And the point that I made to Howard at the time was like CrowdStrike, I think it traded down to like 33 or 35 or something. And we were never an investor in CrowdStrike, but I'm a huge fan of the company, great management team. And I said to Howard, like, is the market for endpoint security going to go away? No. When people move to work from home, what becomes more important? Endpoint security. So you know, I can't tell you whether that stock was going to go up and triple in 90 days like it did, or it was going to grow up 10% over the next five years. I don't really know. But directionally, I know that category is a good category. I know the management team is a good management team. And the fundamental metrics in terms of net dollar retention and expansion are really solid. When a company has net dollar, and you mentioned net dollar retention, so maybe I'll explain it. When a company has strong net dollar retention, you can find these metrics on, on the internet now. They didn't, public companies didn't use to report them and nobody actually analyzed them five years ago. Yeah. Sounds yeah, crazy. Yeah. It was like, you know, the covered wagon days of, of, of software investing. 
But today, well, you, still, a lot of you still can't really screen for something like uh, net dollar-based net expansion rate because uh, some people have it. Some people have it, and then you got folks like Jamin who are, who are publishing it. They're doing their own analysis and publishing yeah. it, which is like if you're an investor and you're not on Twitter discussing this stuff, you're missing out. Like you can learn yeah. so much. But anyway, so so it wasn't covered, and we we took uh, we had a company called Success Factors. We took public back in '08. The market did not understand software at all. They were like, "Well, why don't you get? Why don't you sell a license?" Why don't you get paid up front? Why is it installed on-prem? So the market has come a long way in, in 10 years. And now you can get a lot of data. But to me, one of the most important metrics you can look for is that net dollar retention rate. Because what it tells you, a customer that spent, and I'm going to simplify it because we have to net out churn, but a customer that spent $100 this year, if I have 130% uh, percent net dollar expansion rate, that customer on average is going to spend $130 next year, which is incredible right? I don't have to go resell them. I don't have to go sign a new contract. I don't have to raise their prices. There's so much leverage in that model. And so what you see is companies that have high net dollar retention rates like Slack, like Smartsheet, like Snowflake, which is going public this week, get very high valuations because investors have figured out, I can do the math on the growth of that business. And if I just take the organic expansion rate, and then I layer in new sales and new bookings on top of that, I've got a great business and I'm not actually paying as high a multiple as people think I might be down the road. So to me, that metric has become one of the biggest unlocks in software investing over the last five years. Again, five years ago, most people weren't uh, disclosing the metrics that you needed to analyze it, number one. And number two, analysts and investors didn't really understand it. The market's come a long way, but it's still, I mean, you can just look at a screen of the highest net dollar expansion rate software companies. Go buy those companies. Yeah. You're probably going to do well over the next three to five years. Like, yeah. don't even, I, I can't tell you the market, you know, I, I, I don't have that list off the top of my head. But in general, what they're doing, the other thing that people have figured out about software and SaaS is it's a, it's a tremendous free, clash, free cash flow model. So they're not showing profits and paying out dividends to their shareholders, but they're generating cash from their customers, which is growing every year. They're reinvesting that in the growth of the business, which... One of the other points we could talk about is why do these companies do so well as public companies, right? They're, they're, I, I've tweeted out many times the returns for IPO investors in software over the last four years. They're exceptional. Why? Because you have companies that are hitting their stride. They go public, they generate brand recognition, and they have additional free cash flow to invest in their go-to-market. So there's my pitch for software investing. The, the stocks look very expensive right now. Uh, that's, that's, I, I get that. It looks very expensive to where they were March 16th and 17th. But, you know, if you take a five to 10 year view, which is generally how I think about things. And again, I'm not, I'm not somebody who's trying to time the market. If I have a software stock that I love, that's at $90 a share right now, and I own a bunch of it and it goes down to 50, I'm going to buy more. Now that's just me. I, I, yeah. I kind of mentally have, when I look at my account, I think, oh, if I lose 30, 40%, I better have a list of ones I really want to double down on. And that's basically what I did on March 16th and 17th. I invested more money in the public market in two days than I had in the previous, previous five years. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so let's, that's a good chance to segue kind of into more about public market investing. So the uh, episode of panic with friends, you were on there March 11th. I think the episode aired March 13th or something like that. Yeah, lucky. That was, that was day three you had said of quarantine and you were just talking about how, you know, you were like trying to get used to new life basically and the way things were going. So at that time on March 11th, the S&P 500 was down 19% and you were pretty optimistic and, and 
felt, felt good about things. Well then fast forward to March 23rd, which is 12 more days. And, and that was basically the bottom, right? The SP 500 was down by 34%. I think you were on his podcast again. I didn't listen to that one. I don't know if what you yeah. talked about when you came back on, but just curious, I mean, you were, you're, you know, I would say realistic, but still pretty optimistic on the 11th through to the 23rd. How did, did that impact you the way you thought about markets or where we were going or, or just opportunities at that point? And maybe it was buy more. The, the thing that I was trying to, so I'm, I'm at a point now where I, I was here for the dot-com meltdown and nine 11. I was here for 0809. And I, and I remember in 0809 sitting, you know, every morning watching CNBC and just, it was like a free fall and everybody's brokerage accounts were tanking. And, you know, I remember I owned one stock through a broker that I worked with. It went from like $111 down to $2 in, in 2008 or nine. And I remember being so frustrated at that time, but I hadn't been investing long enough and I didn't have the capital to say at the time, hey, you know what, things are going to get better. And when they do, whoever puts money to work right now is going to make a lot of money. Now, fortunately, I didn't sell. And so I think we were down like 37% in 08, but I was up like 60 in 09. I still didn't make all the money back. But so I, I, I kind of had that memory when, when the crisis hit in February and March. And I said, all right, you know, there's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a movie that was popular in the 90s called Days of Thunder. And it's about uh, race, car, race car driving. Tom Cruise is in it. And there's a scene where he's getting uh, instruction from his old school, uh, you know, driver coach. And he basically says, when you see a wreck and there's a ton of smoke, hit the gas and, you know, power through the smoke. That's your best chance of avoiding an accident. And I think if you can remain calm in the middle of a, a challenging market and say, like to yourself, again, the stocks that I own and love, you know, your Zooms, your CrowdStrikes, your Smartsheets, these high net dollar retention, Twilio, super well-run companies, what, you know, I liked them at $90 a share. I should love them at $30 a share. So buy more. And, um, you know, my only regret is I didn't buy more. I, yeah. I, I wasn't aggressive enough. And I think we all look back and say that, but if your time frame is long, and again, when I was buying in March, my time frame was, I don't, you know, these stocks could be flat for three years. I'm okay with that. I don't have to yeah. produce a, you know, a monthly P&L for my shareholders because it's just me. Um, but if you do that, then eventually those good companies will rebound and you'll, you'll make money. But I think the, you know, this is a little bit of where experience comes in, right? If you've been through a few crises, and I think, you know, it's also benefiting us as venture capital investors because I was in board meetings in March with other board members that were losing their minds. I mean, literally the entrepreneurs calling me and going, hey, this guy is in like, a bunker in New Zealand and he's freaking out. And I'm like, it's not going to be the end of the world. Part of it is we had the lens of already seeing how it was playing out in China, which started to recover very quickly. And we said, you know, unless this is way worse than China, which, you know, I won't go into politics, but like it, we're going to bounce back and the economy will open back up and it's going to be okay. We're not going to all die. Um, so we had that kind of forward visibility to invest. But even if you look back at like 9-11, the travel stocks after 9-11 got crushed. But if you had invested a ton of money in travel after 9-11, you, you made a fortune. So yeah. unless we go off a cliff and the American economy goes on a 10-year you know, downward spiral, which I don't believe it will, you've always made money buying in, in severe corrections in the US. And so 
I think, you know, I don't know where the market will go over the next year or two. Um, obviously, politics plays a part. Interest rates pay a part. Right now, obviously, interest rates are incentivizing everybody in the world to put their money in the market because you don't make any money by putting it in a savings account. When I was growing up in the 70s, you could make 5% in a savings account. Um, so I think that's, that's part of it. But, um, you know, if you just have that long-term point of view, and this is, again, back to your original question, what can we learn from venture capitalists? If you believe in a company, you believe in a team, and you believe in the market they're going after, um, you know, it's like I, I, somebody, when, when, um, when uh, the market was down and somebody asked me about Square, and I've, I've been long Square for a long time. We were an early investor in Square. And I just said, look, I'm long Square and PayPal because I believe that the world is going to shift to digital payments and digital cash. Now, I don't know whether that's going to happen this year or in five years, but I believe that way more of the world's economy will be digital than physical in five to 10 years. So yep. I want to be long those stocks. But again, you have to be willing to kind of ride out the short-term, the short-term swings. Yeah, I, I wish, so I have not been an investor through other crises. Um, what I wish would have happened in taking out all any, uh, you know, personal harm or anything like that. I wish that the market didn't rebound so quick so that <laughs> if we're investing monthly, we had an opportunity to, to buy more longer, you know, and, and the point you made about, uh, as individual investors, we don't really have to answer to anybody is so important. And, and really what we wish for is that for our favorite companies that, that we think have the best long-term opportunities, we want them to stay flat or even down for five or 10 years and keep growing and doing well as a company. We want their stock prices down because eventually it's all, it's, it's going to work itself out. Um, the other yeah, really important thing is, trade, right. You don't have to trade. Yeah. As an individual investor, you don't have to trade. Yep. That, that's a very powerful concept. You can just buy and hold. Yep. And I'll give you an example. I was buying Zoom last fall when I think when it was around 60 or $70 a share. And I had a friend of mine who asked me about it. He said, hey, I, I know you're big on Zoom. And I said, yeah, I think it'll be a huge global company. It'll cross over from enterprise to consumer. It'll be very popular in Asia, blah, blah, blah. I obviously didn't see the pandemic coming. Um, and he, I, I have the text. He texted me. He goes, do you think it could be a $50 billion company? And I said, I think it could be a $100 billion company. And I said, I don't know if that's going to happen in five years or 10 years, but I'm buying on the thesis it's going to be a $100 billion company at some point. So as, long, as my time horizon doesn't matter, and I'm just looking at my, my capital growing over time, it's a very powerful way to invest. And obviously, Zoom, we had a global pandemic. They got a big tailwind. The, the stock ran. But I still believe in the long-term opportunity for Zoom. I think the market is going to go digital. The world is going to be more interested in, in video communication. They have great technology, an incredibly charismatic entrepreneur who I think gets it. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that I hope we see more of, I think Eric, I think Jeff Lawson at Twilio, you know, Mark Benioff at Salesforce, these are founders who also get that they, they need to do something for their community and for society. And so you see them picking causes, picking charitable efforts, whatever um, to give back to. And I think, you know, I'd like to see more of that. I think it's frustrating. It is frustrating to me that like the founders of Google, you know, there aren't any, where's their version of the Gates Foundation? Like Bill and Melinda Gates are going to end up being remembered more for the Gates Foundation than Microsoft. And look at all the things. I mean, they eradicated polio. Like they're two of the most incredible people on the planet and they've devoted their lives to putting all of their money into actually creating change. So what I hope is that we'll eventually see 
the mega billionaires in our country, whether it's Jeff Bezos or Sergey Larry or you know, Elon Musk, put their money to good use and actually try to create some societal change in a major way. Because I think you know, the, the documentary on Netflix about Bill Gates is amazing. And he talks about trying to get toilets into parts of the world that don't have them. If you haven't seen it, you gotta watch it. It's incredible. He talks about a billion people don't have toilets. And he kind of has this thing, the, the, the guy doing the, the uh, documentary says to him, you know, why did you choose to eradicate polio? I, I'm going to tell the story wrong. But he basically says, like, if I didn't, who would? Like, the UN wasn't going to do it. No single country was going to do it. And so I looked at it and said, I had an opportunity to use my wealth to do something good for society. And so I hope, you know, I don't know. I mean, take your pick. Larry Ellison, Sergey Brin, you know, Larry Page, Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos. Like, you're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that could go into societal causes. And so I'd love to see more founders. And again, I use Jeff and, and uh, Mark Benioff as good examples where I think early on in his sort of wealth creation phase, you're seeing Jeff Lawson do some of that as well. And that's what I have a real appreciation for. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really cool to, to see it. Uh, not only are the technologies, I think, helping to improve lives. I talked to um, Jason Evans, who was on the early team at Fastly and he's now a co-founder of a company called Oxio that is helping people in Latin America. Um, it's basically subsidizing cell phone uh, network data for people in Latin America. And, and I guess the, the whole point in all of this is, is uh, we live in a relatively comfortable bubble here yeah, that's in, the United, in the United States. And, and so what he said is that as a percentage of your annual income, it's actually really expensive to have mobile yes. data in Latin America. And they're trying to help solve that through partnerships and stuff. So there's these things that like, we don't even, and, we and don't like, even I'll give you another realize. There's, there's a woman in LA named Shivani Soroya who started a company called Tala. And what, and, and Shivani works at the World Bank. And what she realized, she, she analyzed the economy in Africa in particular. What she, what she came to the conclusion was the single biggest unlock for these countries creating an economy that can grow and thrive like ours is capital. If you are in a remote village in Africa and you don't have access to any kind of banking system or capital, you can't start a business and fund a business. And so she created a company that provides microloans to entrepreneurs and consumers in Africa. They're now in the Philippines. They're in Mexico City. So she's going into these countries and cities that have enormous populations of people who are underserved. They aren't even in the banking system and giving them access to capital. It's a huge unlock, right? I'll give you another example. In India, Reliance Geo, which is basically giving away free cell phone service, is going to change the landscape in India because you have hundreds of millions of people who now have access to the internet and, and uh, via their mobile devices, via Reliance Geo. So I just, again, you go back to the beginning, we talked about being optimistic. You give healthcare access to people via mobile devices. You give banking access to people via mobile devices. You give people access to mobile internet over the next five to 10 years. I think you're gonna unlock a huge amount of potential in, in the world. And you know, yes, tech companies will benefit from that, but you can bet on that as an investor, bet on the rising incomes, bet on the world getting better as opposed to you know, watching the news every morning and freaking out with all the bad stuff that's on the news. And I don't even watch the news. Yeah, I watch CNBC in the morning. I purposely don't watch CNN or Fox or MSNBC because the stuff they're reporting on is ridiculous. Yeah, and it's so frustrating. One of the things I've I've tried to do, and I got this from David Gardner, who's the co-founder uh, of the Motley Fool, is he actually cut most 
news out of his life, right? He subscribes to The Economist and kind of reads it like once a week to still stay up to date. And I'm trying to do that. And, and I mean, I love Twitter and I love, there's a lot of positive things out of Twitter, but even with Twitter, there's a lot of like negative stuff, right? So yeah. yeah, it's, it just negativity is, is just so prevailing over, over optimism, but really, but, that, but that's, I believe, I, I agree with you. I love Twitter. I describe Twitter as like a dog with his head out the window in a car. Like it's like, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the smells and the senses that are coming to that dog. But the majority of the world is negative. And if you are an optimist in a world of negatives, negative, negativism, whatever the world word is, you will do well as an investor. Yeah. Right. Because as economies grow, as incomes rise, as people's lives get better, and these companies that are pr- providing that do well, you will win as an investor. So being yeah. positive, and again, this is go back to your question about March, the world was super negative in March, right? It's COVID-19, we could all die, the economy's going to die, unemployment's going to spike, blah, blah, blah. And a lot of that was true and very scary. But if you asked yourself in a rational world, do I think, and Warren Buffett came out and said this, do I think that the America will survive COVID-19? And do I think at some point in the next 12 to you know, 60 months, life will get better? The answer is yes, I'm optimistic. And so if you, if you believed that, then you would say, okay, then I want to bet on the companies that are going to help make that happen. I'm going to bet on the Amazons, the Zooms, the Salesforces, the CrowdStrikes even the Goldman Sachs, the Blackstones, the KKRs, like the finance guys who will make money in an upturn in the economy. So I think as an investor, if you can sort of remember that, and it's hard right now because people are like, oh, what are you buying right now? I'm like, well, not much. The market's, in my opinion, pretty fully valued. There's a few things that I'm finding that I like that I want to buy because I just believe in the long-term thesis of the business. But I'm also not selling because I'm sitting there saying, well, I love these positions I have and I think they'll be bigger in five years than they are today. They could be down in 12 months, and then I'd love to have a shopping list and say, okay, these are the ones I want to buy more of. Yeah. So with that in mind, what I'm uh, not looking for six month or one year predictions, what's a company or two, or maybe a, I know you like to invest in, um, you know, big tailwinds. Um, what are some either specific companies or, or tailwinds you're excited about over the next five, 10 years uh, when we look at public companies? I'll give you uh, two. Um, one is just digital money, right? So I'm long PayPal, I'm long Square, I'm long Adyen. Uh, I think Adyen's a little bit of an undiscovered name because it's not based in the US. Um, but these companies are just, they're just, first of all, they're very innovative. And second of all, they are in the right, you know, if you think about like where the tailwind is with e-commerce, mobile, digital banking, et cetera, they're sitting in the right place. I'd love to be in Stripe. Stripe's a private company, but Stripe is sitting right in the, you know, in the optimal place as well. So I, I love that category. I think if you can, you know, be invested in those names and have a five-year, ten, ten year, five to 10-year time horizon, you're going to make money. Again, you could argue that, and they've all had big run-ups in the last 12 months, but uh, again, if you have a five to 10-year time horizon, I'm just big on that, that whole category. Uh, Second one I would point to that's not as not talked about that much is SMB Tech, uh, companies that provide technology and tools to small businesses. Uh, It's a focus for us as a firm. We have a lot of private investments in that category. Uh, Company called Slice, company called Electric, company called Brightwheel. Um, I'm on the board of Big Commerce, which just went public, which is in that space. But if you look at the last decade for SMB Tech, if you go back to 2008, 2009. There really was only one company. The OG of SMB Tech was into it. 
And then you had Square go public, you had Shopify go public, you've had Wix and Ring Central and all these companies that cater to small business. $450 billion of market value created in the last 10 years in that space alone. So I'm super bullish on that space, particularly now because I think what will happen in the US and, and arguably around the world, unfortunately, the way we've dealt with COVID-19, you're going to have a high percentage of our small businesses that are going to go under, right? Restaurants and local service providers that just couldn't sustain through the downturn and, and shelter in place. In their place, you're going to see a whole new wave of companies get created. Those companies are going to be built on technology, right? If you were starting a restaurant today, you would absolutely 100% start it with takeout and start it with delivery and start it with a mobile app as a primary interface for your customer. So you're going to have a whole category that's been in some ways slow to adopt that technology that's going to rush into it. And we saw that in Q1 and Q2 as companies move to adopt Slice, they move to adopt uh, um, Toast, you know, these ordering inf interfaces, DoorDash, Uber Eats obviously benefited. So I just think you're going to see a resurgence of, of innovation in the small business arena over the next 12 to 18 months. And, and SMB tech companies will benefit from that. And actually, I wrote a blog post about it, which you can share in our, you know, maybe in the session notes about this, about why that happened, you know, why SMB tech exploded after 2010. And it basically is a result of three things. AWS launched in 2005, the, the iPhone launched in 2008, and the App Store in 2010. And you had the integration of payments and fintech with Braintree and Stripe around 2008 to 2010. All three of those things combined to, com to, to make software available to SMBs and unlock an entire category. So I'm, I'm super bullish on that category. That's awesome. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely link to that, um, <laughs> that blog post. And then that's two big, two big categories to look at. So uh, if you want exposure to Stripe, a great, one of my favorite public companies, and I own shares is Fastly. Um, they're a, a content delivery network and then edge cloud provider. Yeah, well. uh, Stripe is a, a big customer there. So if, if you can kind of benefit a little bit from, from Stripe doing well by owning the company that's helping kind of power some of their stuff if yeah. you want to. And I think, you know, the thing I would say about Fastly and Twilio and Stripe and all these companies is, I, and I've tweeted this a few times, I do believe there's also a difference between what I call tier one cloud and tier two cloud. Tier one is machine to machine. As the world moves to digital, they win no matter what, right? AWS, Twilio, Stripe, uh, Fastly, you know, as the economy moves to digital, they win because you have software buying and consuming other software. Tier two is more of a seat-based software license model, kind of the original Salesforce model. Amazing business. We have 50 to $100 billion companies in that category today, but it's seat-based. And so it's, it's predicated on hiring and productivity of, 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 uh, of people. And I think what you're seeing now is the rise of this machine to machine universe. And, you know, Snowflake's a great example. We have a number of private companies. One of them is called HashiCorp. We just invested in a company called Stream. We have a company called Trade.io that are in this kind of machine to machine universe. And I think you're going to see over the next five to 10 years, some massive companies built in that category because as the, as the economy moves to digital, they win. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we got to get, got to let you go here in a minute, but um, one of the things we love talking about is just, how we can help get our kids or kids interested in investing in finance. So do you have anything that you've found to be effective um, with either your family or, or other, you know, to get the younger generation thinking about investing? Yeah, I, I think it's super important. My dad uh, let me buy stocks when I was a kid, I would give him the cash and he would sort of give me a phantom stock certificate. I bought Microsoft when we went public uh, and, and brilliantly sold it when I made two times my money. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Great return. Well, I calculated later on that I would have made like $7,000 on a $40 bet or whatever it was. But um, so back to your point earlier about your misses. So one, I think, is getting your kids exposure to investing, whether it's getting them to uh, just, you know, just pick a stock like Amazon or Lululemon or whatever, something they like and follow it and just say, follow that stock and watch what it does just for kicks. So that's one of the things I've done with my kids. Two is if you can set up some kind of a, a brokerage account for them and let them own those names, right? So my, my son owns Twilio and he owns what he would say is he owns Xbox, but he owns Microsoft because he loves Xbox. Uh, it's just a great way for them to learn. And then in terms of budgeting and managing your money, one of the things that my dad did, uh, or my parents did when I was a kid, when I was 12, I believe, they put us on a budget. And they said, here's your money for the year for all your haircuts, your clothing, and your uh, school lunches. And they gave it to us up front. And we had to then manage that throughout the year. Wow. And of course, you know, my brother likes to famously say that I went out and bought a pair of Air Jordans and he, you know, he bought like whatever the Sears knockoff version was. And so he had more money than I did when we were younger. But like just teaching your kids to sort of forward budget a little bit. And, you know, we're doing it with our kids and it, <laughs> it has some issues, but it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Um, really appreciate your time. And for everybody listening, you can find Jeff again on Twitter at jrichlive, um, at GGV Capital on Twitter, and then ggvc.com is, is the firm's website. Um, so thanks a lot. Really had fun and appreciate the conversation, Jeff. Thanks, Austin. Take care, man. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. And before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult with a financial or tax professional.